The Old Testament text is the 97th Psalm. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those who are here for the first time, I've been working my way through the book of Psalms. I have not been preaching every psalm. Uh, I mentioned to my session that that would require three years, and uh, that would be a bit much. But uh, I've selected a few. These are some of my favorite. My favorites that I'm preaching from, and today I'm preaching from the 97th Psalm, but I want to think a little bit about what it means to uh, read a psalm, to hear a psalm, as opposed to other kinds of scripture, other forms that scripture takes. Something to keep in, in mind as you think about psalms is that they're verse. In other words, they're uh, intended to be sung, but they're also uh, poetic, they're poetry. Uh, you can contrast that with prose. So prose and verse are two forms of writing or two forms of expression. And uh, when we think of prose, we think of, sing, uh, of, of, of communication that's prosaic, mundane, matter of fact, perhaps not terribly imaginative, although really good writers of prose uh, can really engage us uh, imaginatively, but you get the drift. But verse, on the other hand, by its very character, is imaginative, metaphorical, and even lyrical in character. Something about it that elevates, that's special. Great stories in the past were put into epic poetic form. Take the Iliad, or the Odyssey, or the Aeneid, or Paradise Lost. Those are all great poetic epic works. And uh, when it comes to psalms, they're all verse, uh, and they're all poetic, but there are different kinds when it comes to the psalms. There are some psalms that are laments, where somebody is complaining about the wickedness that he's subject to, and, or why things don't work out the way he wishes they would. Uh, there are other uh, laments where the psalmist is actually confessing his sin, and uh, actually pointing out the reason why he's under God's Wrath. But then there are uh, imprecatory psalms where you actually are praying uh, and singing about God judging an enemy. That's an interesting thing to think about, something that perhaps we need to get back to. Uh, 
Well, I think we should, not perhaps. Then there are psalms of ascent, psalms that were intended to be sung as you approached Jerusalem on pilgrimage, as you were ascending the hill of the Lord. But then there are other psalms that are just, frankly, didactic in character. In other words, they're, they're intended to teach, to provide kind of an outline of, of uh, the way things are and uh, how you should think about reality itself. And that's what we have here. What you could say is uh, this psalm, the 97th psalm, is a worldview psalm. It's intended to help you see what the world is really like, uh, how it's constituted, give you a sense of how it's how its space is arranged and how time uh, is laid out, where we're all going. So it begins with this statement, the Lord reigns. So you see that in the very first verse, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Rejoicing is what we ought to do when we recall that the Lord's in charge. What this is followed by is a statement concerning where the Lord reigns from. See that in verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then we see what follows, which is awesome in character. This is sublime. I mentioned what uh, the word sublime refers to a few weeks back, but essentially it's intended to convey to us the awesome power of God. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. I'd like to go back and just take a quick look at that statement, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. This isn't the only time we're told this in Scripture. Uh, when Solomon uh, is dedicating the temple, when he addresses the people of Israel at the dedication, he notes that God dwells in thick darkness. Now, what's this intended to convey to us? I think many of us, I think rightly, because it is scriptural, when we think of anything, when it comes to thinking about God, we think about light, right? But here we're told that God dwells in thick darkness. What's this intended to convey to us? Well, we can think of it in a quite literal way, but I also think if you keep in mind what verse is and what a psalm is, and it also is intended to communicate something at a visceral level that's true in just an absolute sense, and that is this. God is inscrutable. There's a sense in which no matter how long you study theology or spend time in the scriptures, God will elude you. Because God is not some object that can be studied like we study uh, anything else in the world. We can grasp those objects of study, and in some sense when we grasp them, we have some measure of power over them. You've heard the term, knowledge is power. Francis Bacon is the fellow that made that famous, that statement, but it's true. The more you know, the more you can kind of sort of control the circumstances that you find yourself in. The more you can kind of guide your way through life or make your way through life. But when it comes to God, there's no mastery of the subject. Do you get what I'm getting at? The more you know about the Lord, the more you're subject to Him. It works the other way around. It doesn't work the way that other things work when we come to know them. Knowledge is power means that, uh, you know, if you 
have a knowledge of something, you have some measure of control over it. But God is always more than anything else in the world. There is a sense in which God is high, set apart, different, beyond your grasp, and you are the one who is grasped when it comes to the knowledge of God. Now, we're told in Scripture and other places that uh, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. It's the glory of kings to search things out. That's from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. But this also means, when we think about God and uh, the fact that no matter how much we give ourselves over to the study of God, we can't fully grasp him. It means he's beyond our ability to corrupt. Like when you think about whatever you uh, have to do at work to get things done, isn't it true that one of the things that's really helpful when it comes to getting things done is knowing people and then knowing maybe their strengths and their weaknesses, knowing what is likely to get them to do what you want? You get They drift. When it comes to God, that's never an option because God always is far greater than your ability to appreciate and understand. So that's one dimension of this. I think another dimension of this is not only is God inscrutable, God is inaccessible. Now, I think uh, it's important for us to keep in mind that God does come near and God does comfort us and God's Spirit goes with us. Nevertheless, in a real way, God is holy and set apart. The word sanctify means to set apart. And when we think about God and the fact that he's set apart, this, this conveys to us his, not just only his unique character, but his, but his value. Let me, let me give you a way to, to, to think about this. You're familiar with the term familiarity breeds contempt? Have you ever felt contempt for things that you're very familiar with? You know what, that, that there's something to that then. But there's a sense in which no matter how much you think you are you know, in the know when it comes to God, uh, there is no familiarity in that sense when it comes to knowing him. I remember I had an experience that really brought this home years ago. I was at a, a car show in Boston. It was at this you know, trade center, and every car maker that you can imagine was there. Bugatti, Volkswagen, Yugo. I mean, the full range, <laughs> right? And so I remember as, you know, you would go, as I, as I went through this car show, I, I just delighted in the fact that no matter, and I was very young, we had no money, but I could sit in these cars that I could only dream of owning. And I would do that. I would open up the Subaru, sit in it, and say, yeah, that's okay. I'd close the door. Then I got to the luxury car section, right? The BMWs, the Audis, the Bugattis, all that stuff was there. I remember just running like a kid in a candy store, as the, as the cliche goes, opening the car, sitting in, pretending I was driving. And then I came to the Benz, Mercedes Benz. And I reached and hand, got the handle of the, to the door and to the, you know, to the driver's seat, and I it was locked. Every Benz was locked. I went from Benz to Benz, tried to sit down. No, not anyone's allowed to sit in a Benz. I had to go and ask permission to sit in the Benz. And the message, you know, got across. This isn't for everybody. Only for the qualified. 
they did ask me what I was worth, and they didn't let me in. <laughs> but you get the drift. There's something about exclusivity that conveys a very important message related to value. You just can't treat God in any old way. God is holy. God is set apart. You approach him on his terms and in his way. Now, we're also told in this passage that uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. See that in verse 2, right following clouds and thick darkness? Something worth thinking about here. Righteousness and justice have their origin in God. That's where righteousness and justice come from. Um, And it's because God is righteous and just that his rule is righteous and just. Now, occasionally in the course of your life, you can come across somebody, maybe this was you at some point in your life, maybe this is even you today, uh, and you raise objections to the way things uh, are done in, in, in the world and use those objections to rail against the existence of God. There's something ironic about atheists in this regard. Atheists use reason, which they can't explain. They can't explain its origin or why it has any authority, but they use it and apply their critiques to the one who reason is actually a reflection of his own wisdom, God himself, against him. So one of the tricks that I like to employ whenever I'm engaging with an atheist on the, you know, the subject of God's righteousness and justice and his rule and the problem of evil and all that kind of stuff is, I just ask, where does reason come from? Where does the sense that you have that reason is something that can be applied to the world to help you understand it and sort it out and evaluate it, where does that all come from? Is it just simply the product of evolutionary forces? If it's merely the product of evolutionary forces, then why does it convey any sense of authority? It's just some kind of mechanism to help people survive. It doesn't necessarily mean that it gives us a good picture or an accurate picture of the way the world actually is. In other words, what happens with atheism uh, as a kind of philosophy is it pulls its own basis out from underneath itself. It undermines its own arguments. If you just simply apply uh, the thinking consistently. The point, though, that I'm getting at here is that all good things have their origin in God. Righteousness and justice have their origin in God. And God rules righteously and justly. And consequently, uh, his judgments are righteous and just. But God is not merely a deity who has good intentions but can't pull off his program. And that's why we're reminded here a little later that God does have power. His lightnings. Well, it says there in verse 3, Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now, what's, I think, important to note here is that these uh, demonstrations of God's power help us to, help us to understand and, ex- and sort of revel in and enjoy the fact that God's righteous judgments are uh, executed. God does what he intends to do. Now, there is a, an awkward relationship between power and authority. 
Sometimes it's put this way, it, in terms of you know, the relationship between might and right. Uh, Thrasymachus, I know it's a name you think about every day, he was a sophist who was an interlocutor with uh, uh, Socrates, uh, and he had, there's a remarkable exchange in the Republic between Thrasymachus and, and Socrates. And Thrasymachus says, justice is nothing more than the interest of people in power. That's it. Might makes right. There are a lot of folks who have the disquieting, you know, sort of feeling that that's kind of the way the world is. There isn't anything really to justice or righteousness. It's just basically a bunch of people in charge and everybody doing what they say. But according to Scripture, that's not the case. God's authority is based upon the fact that he is the righteous and just judge of the earth, and his power follows. It's not might makes right, it's might serves right. It's important never to lose sight of that. We don't just have a God who sits in the sky and looks down on the earth and wishes us well. Wow, those folks down there, they're having a hard time. I (laughs) I hope they can make it through. No, it's not the way it works. The Lord is righteous and just, and his judgments are executed, and he has the power to bring to pass those judgments that he makes. Those are things to keep in mind. And whether we're talking about human opposition or just natural forces, in either case, the power of God is overwhelming. But it's just. It's good. It's right. These are important convictions that we as Christians can't lose a grip on. And I wonder sometimes if we are in our world today. Now, we're told here that the heavens proclaim his righteousness. See that there in verse 6? The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. The heavens proclaim. The heavens proclaim. The heavens speak. We see this theme occur again and again throughout the Psalms, that the heavens speak. Now, we live in a day and a day and age in which people don't seem to have kind of an ear for that. Uh, they look up in the sky, and instead of seeing the glory of God, they just see atoms in motion and worlds, you know, spinning and so on and so forth. They have a prosaic understanding of the nature of the world that we live in, and I mean world in the biggest sense, meaning everything, the cosmos. But because the creation that we live in is a creation, it has a poetic character. The word poet or poetry, if you look at its origin, if you trace you know, sort of its history and go back to where it came from, back through Latin into Greek, poesis, the source word for the word poetry, just simply means to make. So in some sense... The universe that we dwell in was made to speak, was made to proclaim God's glory. The question is, is whether we have an ear for it or if we have an eye for it. The creation, the heavens, do speak, and the, it, the, the scope is universal. We're told here, not only do the heavens proclaim God's righteousness, but all people see his glory. 
doesn't matter where you're standing on the face of the earth. All people see his glory. See that in Psalm 19 where we're told that the, the sky, the heavens above, are like a tent uh, along, under which the sun itself uh, charts its course or makes its way across the sky. So we, we have a world that we dwell in which speaks, and we in, are inhabitants of it, but we're not the only ones. Do you see the reference to all you gods there in verse 7? Have you ever wondered what, in the, you know, what this could possibly be referring to? After all, we're monotheists, right? We believe that there is one true God. Uh, note here that this is a lowercase g. That's important to note or to remember. Uh, but what, what could this possibly be referring to? Is this some kind of just rhetorical, you know, sort of uh, aside? If there are such a thing as gods, you know, uh, worship the Lord. Uh, or is there something else being addressed or being referred to? I think there are basically two possibilities and I think they're both true, so you don't have to choose. <laughs> For one thing, the Lord Jesus quotes uh, one of the Psalms and uh, John chapter 10 and notes that God's word says that you are God's, and he's referring to those to whom the word of God came. And Jesus is using this in the course of uh, an argument that he's having with uh, people who are criticizing his own status as the Son of God. But Jesus is just making a point that in some sense, you and I, because we are made in the image of God, and we know things that other creatures don't know, we're God-like. And so this could be addressing, and I think it is, us. All you gods worship him. But I think that there are, uh, is another possibility, and that possibility is uh, noted in Ephesians and in other places in Scripture that there are principalities and powers, angelic, the angelic host. And what we uh, are given some insight into is that we don't actually live in a vast cosmic machine so much as we live in a vast cosmic hierarchy and even bureaucracy. Now, that's a terrible thing to consider. <laughs> If you've had any experience with bureaucracies, uh, that should be frightening. And, and it is, because sometimes bureaucrats uh, exceed the bounds of their authority and do things they shouldn't do. And you and I, in this vast bureaucracy, have roles to play ourselves. And do we always do what we're supposed to do? That's a rhetorical question that you're all supposed to say, no, <laughs> obviously not. And that's not just true for you and me, but for the angelic hosts. And because of that, uh, we've got a real problem. We have a universe, a cosmos that we live in, in which there is real rebellion. And because that rebellion is real, there are real consequences. And one of the things that we see happen, not only in our own lives, but with the angelic host, is we're covetous, these different officials within this vast bureaucratic sort of tableau, we're all covetous of the glory that belongs to God alone. We have a kind of tendency to usurp or to arrogate to ourselves the worship, the respect, the glory that only God deserves. 
And because that's the case, we erect idols. We create gods for ourselves. And we invest ourselves in these worthless things. And we're told in this passage that there's going to come a day when the worthless character of those idols will be seen. Uh, And consequently, we shouldn't invest ourselves in those things. Instead, we should invest ourselves in the worship of God because that's the glory. That's the thing that's worth acknowledging as worthwhile and true. And we should long to possess it. Now, let me take this to the, take us to the end of this psalm and to the end of my little discourse on it. Take a look at verse uh, 8 with me, if you would, please. Here we're told, Zion hears and is glad. So, in relationship to the very first verse, we can see that there's kind of a parallel here. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Zion hears and is glad. This raises a question that I think that uh, each of us should consider. And that is, am I? Am I glad that the Lord reigns? Um, We should enjoy his rule, in other words. We shouldn't just endure it. We shouldn't just put up with it. We should delight in it. We should trust his judgments more than our own. Now, perhaps it seems to you that uh, every once in a while that uh, no one looks like he's in charge. You know, you see the news from Portland and you say, no one appears to be in charge. That kind of craziness that's going on over there is just horrendous. I hope it just stays over there and doesn't get any closer to me. But maybe you even find yourself in a situation that seems kind of like an anarchic or anarchy and you're wondering who's in charge. Doesn't appear to be the case that anyone's in charge. We're told in this this passage and in other places in Scripture, rest assured, God is in charge. Now, he may not move as quickly as you would like. We're told in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that, you know, he's not slow. He's actually merciful. In other words, there is something that God is up to that sometimes we don't appreciate. The reason for the speed at which God operates You know, it may seem like from our perspective, this is taking a thousand years, but we're told there by Peter that, well, that's like a day to him. So let's keep that in perspective. But he's not slow because he's neglectful. He's slow because he's merciful. God has good things in store for some people that you and I would rather not have good things in store for. (laughs) And it's because of that that God moves slow at different times. Nevertheless, he is the most high and everything is accountable to him. Everyone in this vast bureaucracy is accountable to the Lord. He is the most high. And we're given a promise, promise at the end, that in verse 11, light is sown for the righteous. Isn't that a beautiful image? It says, though light is seed, it's like almost like fireflies that God casts from on high and they settle upon those below and are a source of blessing to you and me. Now, light often in Scripture is associated with what? Seeing, of course, 
and perceiving, of course, and understanding, of course, and truth, of course, all of these things are associated with light. And the truth will eventually come out. The word apocalypse, I've used this before several times, but we can't remind ourselves of this too much. When you hear the word apocalypse, you probably think about a film like Apocalypse Now and just how awful you know, an apocalypse would be because it's a time of judgment. And that's true. For those who are wicked, the apocalypse is going to bring to light or reveal the wicked things that those people have been up to. But apocalypse simply means to reveal, which means that if you've been keeping good secrets, it's a good day. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, there are a lot of people who go around giving stuff to people, fasting, praying, and letting everyone know all along what they're up to. Look at me over here on the corner praying. Look at me fasting and suffering like I am right now. And Jesus says, hey, they've got the reward. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for that kind of praise, the kind of praise that we can give to each other, the kind of glory that we can manufacture for ourselves. But Jesus says, keep those things secret. Isn't it the case that we always keep the worst things about ourselves secret and tell everybody else all the good stuff? I'm not saying that's a bad move when it comes to maybe career advancement, but, <laughs> but when it comes to the glory of God and genuine righteousness, we're told in Scripture, flip it. Confess your sins. Look for forgiveness and keep the good points to yourself. Now, that's a really hard secret to keep. Have you ever done something for somebody that was just so wonderful and you said, I got to tell somebody? I got to tell somebody. Work at it. Don't. Don't. Really keep it between you and the Lord. And there will come a day, we're told, that when everything that's hidden will be shouted from the rooftops. With that in mind, what do you want to be? Uh, everybody to hear that they didn't know already, right? If you confess your sins, then everybody will say, well, we knew that all along. <laughs> we, know that, we knew that from the start. What you want is all that good stuff to come out. The stuff that comes out because God, through the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, worked it in. See what I'm getting at? This is a picture of the way things are. And with this picture in mind, we should order our own lives so that we fit into that picture in the, in the best way possible. It's not as though Christ is only Lord for you know, some people and not for... He's Lord for everybody, but some people enjoy His rule and other people dread it. My prayer for all of us is that we'll enjoy it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your goodness to us. We know that the only reason that we can enjoy your rules because of your mercy that you uh, have demonstrated to us through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to enjoy the good things that we can enjoy in you uh, because of what he, you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.